A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, um, a famous man put a bet on at the start of the season. Brilliant. Um, with Barcelona as the choice. How have your bets gone in the past, choice. Dave? Um, well, <laughs> it is Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Weekend Review of me, Adam Bolt, with the one and only Lawrence McKenna. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. David Bryce here as well. Hello. As is... Nico Morales. How you doing? Let's not mess about. Let's get into this. Part one is our Premier League review. Part two, we're going to be previewing and reacting to the UEFA Champions League. Last 16, draw some huge games there. But there was a huge game this weekend, Dave. It was the Manchester Derby 2-1. It finished in the end to City at Old Trafford, making it 14 Premier League wins in a row. A new record in a single season. And it means, Dave, the title race is over. Uh, I think it, it's over if they beat Spurs. I think that's the next. I think if, if City beat Spurs, then it's, it's done. I think Spurs are the only team now that can stop City winning the title. And if they win that game, was it on next weekend? I think that's game set match. Unfortunately, I think the gap's probably too big at the moment um, with Manchester United in second place. So if if it's not pulled back before the Christmas period, and that's when you can start putting that pressure on, and you know there's a lot of games in a short space of time over December, especially at the end of the month. If they win this next game, I think that's it. I think that's curtains. Mm. I mean, like I say, it's hard to see where they can drop points if they can beat, say, Chelsea away from home and now Manchester United away. It's difficult to see where they are going to uh, going to falter. Um, what about this game, though? Manchester United and Mourinho needed a win to realistically keep the title race alive, and they failed to do that, Dave. I think there's, there's a few issues. I think, first off, you know, playing a back four, not a back five, was a big problem. I think the, the teams that have done well against City, from watching City over the last like month or so, they've played a back five or they've played a hybrid of a back five, whether it's one of their wingers that drops back on the, the left-hand side to deal with Walker and Sterling or whatever. That's, that's what United should have done. But again, consequently set pieces where the game was won and lost, which for Mourinho must be a real bitter pill, pill, pill to swallow because that's what Mourinho should be doing well. And United conceding a free kick and then conceding the goal, the second one, the first one being a, being a corner that's come in. Again, you look before that goal, why is that corner come? Because United don't press the, the fullback. If United are playing a back five in that situation, the winger's going to be a little bit higher naturally because it's a wingback, not a fullback, which consequently means that there's pressure on that ball. Fabian Delft doesn't pick out that pass. Then City don't win that corner. But the United defending that corner was very poor. They didn't attack City where they should have attacked City from corners especially. 
Um, it was just a bad setup all round from United and playing the four forwards and whether that is the media pressure or the fan pressure or whatever the pressure that Mourinho's felt to make that decision or whatever he's seen, I don't know what he's seen and I don't understand why he's gone with that. The only thing I can think about is there's all this attack, attack, attack shite, which is just complete bollocks, to be quite frank, right? Let's take this Manchester City team, right? You, you're not going to take the ball off them. Right. So you can never be in an attacking situation because you're not going to get it off them. You're, you, it's like the Barcelona team. You didn't beat that Barcelona team by playing them at their own game because you lose at that. You can't, United, go you can't play to City it. at their own game because they'll lose at that own game because City have a lot of technically gifted forwards in central midfield. So to come on this sort of pursuit of why we didn't win this game is because you know we didn't attack. It's complete horseshit. And quite frankly, it's just like, it's such bollocks because the big thing that you want to do is you want to control. What United didn't do against City was have control. And that should be in a defensive sense by playing a back four, sorry, playing a back five and controlling that defensive area. And they didn't do that. And then you think about them combining on the counter-attack. Playing those four attackers would make the, you know, would make the, would make John down the pub go, oh, we've got four attackers. We're going to be better on the counter-attack. But what you find with that United team, with that lineup, is that they got in each other's way. They were too individual on the break. Whereas when they were playing this three, when it was Lingard, Martial and Lukaku, they were playing more as a team. They were playing more as a little unit, which is what they needed to do against City, which is what they didn't do. And it's just frustrating to see the performances of United over the last week, especially against Watford, against Arsenal. Brilliant performances. And then to just throw it away and lose that game from a free kick and a corner. Jesus. (laughs) I mean, we've got to bring you in, Andy. What did you make of it? I mean, the the scoreline didn't seem to reflect the dominance that City had in this game. Yeah, to some extent, but I think it's one of those occasions where, you know, the, the maybe the gravity of the situation with it being a derby, with it being, you know, pretty much, as Dave says, you know, now there is a an even bigger gap between Manchester City and the rest of the league, and specifically Manchester United, that obviously want to challenge for the title. And I think in those kind of situations, the emotions of the game can affect the game state in a major way. But I think, to, to sort of reference what Dave is talking about there, I think, if you look at the last three games that Manchester City has played previous to the Derby, there is a case that you know a team should take a more defensive approach, be more compact, and maybe play five at the back. The five-four-one, as Dave mentioned in the in the preview podcast, is not a bad idea. But I think if you look at the game uh, and previous games this season that teams have played Manchester City very closely. Um, I think you have to incorporate, whether you want to do it over 90 minutes or, or you know, do it in phases, I think you have to incorporate some degree of a high press. And I don't think Manchester United did that enough. And I think this was sort of the perfect game for uh, a team like Manchester United to do that because they're not super proficient in, in the high pressing. I think they have a very effective sort of middle block, and they did that in the game to some extent. They were very uh, uh, effective at sort of blocking those... Uh, the passes from the center backs and some of the defensive players farther forward. But I think since Manchester City were missing such a big part of their buildup, which is John Stones, there are players like Vincent Company who they didn't specifically go after in the buildup um, that are susceptible to, to pressure and to making bad passes. And I think there was an opportunity for Mourinho to, to take advantage of that, and I don't think he did. I think that was the, the fallacy in his approach to the game, is that, yeah, they were defensive, and maybe they could have gone with a, more, with a different, more efficient uh, defensive strategy, but I think in order to beat Manchester City, you have to try to 
win those situations because, as Dave said, you're not going to get the ball off them that often. You're not going to be able to attack in that many situations. So if you can create sort of a counter-pressing opportunity, which some coaches have said, you know, is more valuable than any, you know, world-class playmaker, then I think you have a real advantage, especially if you can nick a goal and then be really defensive and go back into your defensive shell, then you have that advantage. Um, so, yeah, I think that was really the mistake that Mourinho made. Do you agree with that, Dave? No, I don't. I don't think you should press the City team high. I think that's suicidal. I think there's. I think you should catch them on the break. I think you should allow them onto you, and then then you break. I think teams that have done that, Nico, yeah, are teams that, that you like, like Napoli. And what happened to Napoli? They got undressed. What happened to yeah, but, other teams okay, that so, have tried so, that? They so get the taken other, apart. So Napoli, Napoli didn't. Napoli didn't do it particularly well because they didn't phase it correctly. But I think the one game that I'd like to point to in specific. Um, is Southampton. That was a game where the expected goals for the first time this season for this, Manchester City was 50 This is, this is perfect then. That they it didn't high press. They pressed they, they, Carl they Walker on the ball. They pressed in phases. They high pressed they, in phases. They just Obviously, pressed Carl Walker. That's all they did. They pressed Carl Walker and that's how they won the ball high. And, they, and didn't, they didn't press collectively. Another, another they pressed a single player. Another thing that they did is they isolated Vincent Kompany. They isolated the passes from that player who they know is probably the least proficient, proficient passer in that, uh, in that team, in that game, and they made him make bad decisions. Manchester United didn't do that. Yeah, but then that's, that's, that that's different than you saying a high press. A high press means a collective. You're saying that this is pressing individual players into mistakes. Okay, but, that's uh, man-to-man. Uh, man all over again, shit. <laughs> I like, think yeah, that, that, what you're saying there, in terms of I agree with what you're saying there, is you press City with the players like Carl Walker, who is susceptible to pressure. United didn't do that. I agree with that, but that's not a high pressure thing. That's something you can do by drawing City on, allowing City to move to this two-four-two-three structure that they move into possession, and then going. If you're saying high pressure, you're mean playing out the back, which is what you shouldn't do against City. You shouldn't play high against City. I think, there's a, I think that, there are opportunities to do that. Yeah, I, I think I think there are opportunities to do that when they play uh, out of goal kicks, when they play out of you know close throw-ins and stuff like that. I think there are opportunities to be that high up the field. Um, and and but then that, again, the, you're saying now you're going from saying high press to now you're situational pressing on throw-ins and goal kicks. Which one is it, well, Nico? I, <laughs> what I mean by what I mean by high press is being that far up the field and pressing those players. This in in the derby, it was sort of a and obviously it was phased, but there it was. They were specifically focus, focusing on when the ball was in, as you're saying, when they get into that advanced build up formation when it's already past uh, the first stage and they're trying to progress the ball to to their forward players. That's too late in my opinion, and maybe it is situational, and that's why I say it's phased. Because you can't do that for ninety minutes, because that will stretch your team far too much. You'll be holding a high and line. You can't do that in a back. You can't do that in a back four. You just can't you, because of the numbers. You, can. you can't. The numbers don't work. Either you're playing a back four, but you're pressing with a back three, or you're playing a back three and you're pressing with a back three. Finally, an English coach that can outthink a foreign coach. Jesus. <laughs> like, for example, if you've got a four, you're going. That means you're going four v three versus City's attackers. If you're saying that you're high pressing them, you have to go man to man all over the pitch, which is, is a partly a problem fucking, that Mourinho. That is that is such a big gamble against someone like Leroy Sana, against Raheem Mourinho. Sterling, against Gabriel Jesus. Dave, I think it's also worth saying you have you, to take the gamble you, to to create those kind of opportunities. You see, that's, I disagree. You've got to control to the right phases of play, and you've got to be you've got to be defensive. Is it okay that both can be right? Um, it, it's also though that uh, Dave, surely you said Mourinho didn't have the personnel in order to enact maybe the exact uh, tactics that he wanted to, especially looking at the starting centre-back pairing. I mean, 
everyone was busy on match of the day last night criticizing Dejan Lovren because he couldn't control certain <laughs> elements of his game. But at the same time, <laughs> they left at, Marcus Rojo fell on his ass. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they, that was that was almost <laughs> left out of the stats package as if, and, and for some reason, I mean, I know there's a narrative to it there that you know Lovren's not good enough or whatever. Well done, Danny Murphy pointed that one out for the fiftieth time in a row. But then there's also a frustration with someone like Marcus Rojo, and I, I guess. I guess I just want to hear your take on that as a United fan because you didn't so, tell yeah. two guys who were extremely exposed. It's an, it's an accident way to happen. It's crazy. Why would you play it those two happen. together? Chris Smalling and Marcus Rojo. I wouldn't trust them with my life. If my life depended on it and they were like, right, these two in a 1v1 and you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll gamble. You might as well just kill yourself because they're going to get done. If you consistently run that phase over and over again, Raheem Sterling, Gabriel Jesus or Sane versus, any of the, versus either of those two centre-halves, you're going to lose the battle. The bad if City's finishing Rojo. was better, surely, Dave, they would have been up a goal against those guys in the early minutes because a number of times they shot directly at David Day. Yeah, I think there was opportunities that City didn't really exploit. And that was the frustrating thing is that City in open play weren't actually that good when they got to the final third. I thought they had opportunities, like you mentioned there, to really get a United. I remember the one where Jesus ran through and he tried to flick when he should have had a shot on goal. They made some yeah. poor decisions. And again, another day, this could have been a, an absolute humping by City. But the big thing with Marcus Rojo, like, it was atrocious in a defensive sense. So why else would you pay him? What, what you play him for his ball-playing capabilities? The lad completed seven passes in 45 minutes. He had a pass accuracy of 39%. You compare that to someone like Victor Lindelof. Victor Lindelof came on at half-time. Only Nemanja Matic and Herrera and Ashley Young completed more passes than him. And you see the difference. I watched it back today. You see the difference when he's there. He's not stressed. He's just chilled on the ball. He'll play the right pass. He'll make the correct decision. And as well, 1v1 defending. What he's done recently, what he's excelled against Arsenal, what he excelled at doing against um, Richardson for Watford was beating people 1v1 and, and knowing when to go, knowing when to drop back, knowing when to go into your back four. You watch Rojo and Small in that first half. Pff, honestly, they were, they were just so giddy on the ball. And, you know, you go back to the free kick in that second half and the Herrera. What the hell is he doing to make that foul? Like, obviously, it comes from a free kick. You've got to look at the point of the free kick. Go back and look at that. And it's just like the decision that he's made there. The back four's behind him. He's got a DM. He's got Matic next to him. The, the wingers dropped on that side. The wingers dropped on the other side. United have a two, a two banks of four ready to go. City have one player ahead just inside. I think maybe one player wide as well. And he goes and commits a stupid foul. And United can see the goal from it. And it's that, that basic Mourinho... decision making that's the problem, maybe. I, I also I dis I disliked a little bit of criticism of uh, Lukaku again. Oh, it's just fucking honestly at the moment. Yeah. It just kills go, me. Go back through the, any the, of the, the second the second supremely the, the the second supremely uh, talented striker in the same amount of years that will be deemed by Manchester United fans to be inadequate. Who's the first Nico? <laughs> Uh, one of the greatest of all times, Latani Ibrahimovic. I thought you meant Ruben oh, wow. Sorry. Yeah, but then this um, is, I think this is the problem. Like, who's deeming them inadequate? People that would say to Manchester United, "We need to. We should have attacked City more." And again, I go back to that United point: you can't attack City without the ball. And it's um, it, like these people in the media are like, it's just like it just the media. listening to what they say it just infuriates me. Like it's, they as they, it's as if they're watching the highlights, Dave, and then having to create a short package that they yeah, yeah, it's like that they don't it. actually watch football and they go, Lukaku, you know, he sliced a clearance and he and he he missed a one v one or you know Edison made a great save. It hit Edison square in the fucking face. 
He didn't make it a good save. Great save. He made himself really big. Called positioning, like, David. Called positioning. In, in the face. Lukaku. There's a really good point to be to be made there that actually we, we we do require, and I think that's something that maybe journalism lacks a lot at the moment. There are some very creative journalists who are very good at coming up with sensational headlines that you'll click, but their actual analysis of the game isn't as creative as we probably like. I don't mean creative like making things up. I mean like creative looking for the angle which is actually going to be insightful. Mm. And I think we do miss that quite a lot at the moment because there's too many people who need the clicks. Hello, the independent who need the clicks to be able to get through uh, the day because otherwise they can't justify their existence. And they're wanked off by everyone else in the media because they're the, the popular boys right now. And, you know, they humiliate a few other journalists online and feel like they're the big man around town. I'm sure they're lovely guys uh, very often. And I've had some lovely conversations with some of these guys. But at the moment, it feels a lot like people trying to justify their position through numbers that they get rather than the analysis that they're giving. And it's the same frustration on match of the day too, all those sorts of things. So a really good example of that, Lawrence, for example, is one of the papers that writes Spurs absolute garbage sometimes in terms of political and whatever. So no bolt their, tactical, their tactical analysis of the Sorry. game was Raheem Sterling playing as a false nine. Nico, Brilliant. did Raheem Sterling play as a false nine through the middle for the entire game? No. Oh, no, correct. Shit. Bang. Shit, analysis broken. Second point, Manchester City's set pieces wreak havoc. Um, then he, they brings up a point on... Oh, Very Guardiola. accidental set so pieces. The, the, the point, so this is the point of the analysis. Barcelona regularly scored, did it under Guardiola. PK had a good record for goals. Brilliant. You've not mentioned the frequency of that, how many times they scored from set pieces in Guardiola. He said it was You've not good, mentioned the number. Then, then moving on to the last one, the he midfield good, battle and the absence of Pogba. Drawing on the point that Pogba was, wasn't in the game. That doesn't fucking matter of tactical analysis between Manchester United and Manchester City when Pogba is not there because he wasn't there. It, I mean, it would have been lovely if he was there, though, wouldn't it, Dave? It would have made the game a bit easier for United. He was present. He, he's just not there. And like to, to write tactical analysis and, and make a point on something that's not there... It's just useless, given the, the, the time. If this is written t- tomorrow or the next day and being like, how Pogba could have improved the derby, fair enough. But this is on that the game. Good. This is well, a tactical analysis on the game. And then the Dave, final you point... you that as a video? That would actually be really bloody <laughs> Lukaku continues to struggle. What do you mean? He's got an assist. He fucking pretty much ran the counter-attack against Arsenal. Scored against... Well, you know, nearly scored against Watford. He's playing well. And he, he, did, he made two mistakes in a defensive sense that wouldn't have happened if United had played an extra centre-half because that centre-half would have been fucking covering Vincent Kompany, would have been covering Otamendi and would have been covering Fernandinho, who were both Lukaku's men on both of the set pieces. But, Dave, he's not Alan Shearer, and that is a real problem. I can't score against uh, top six, Dave. That's the thing, you know. You oh, mate. I don't, do you know, I don't only know. Jamie Vardy was directly involved in more goals last season than Lukaku against the top six, Adam. So, so uh, <laughs> very good. Um, um, you need to shut up about performances against the top six because I think you shouldn't throw <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's dangerous ground. It's certainly dangerous ground. Um, it's dangerous, mate. You're in the middle of a bloody sand dune. I was going to ask a uh, slightly broader question, Dave, in terms of, I, I mean, you said earlier, essentially, that Manchester United can't go toe-to-toe with Pep Guardiola's side. Just thinking of, in a broader sense, they should be able to do that? I mean, they're the richest club, one of the biggest clubs in the world. Should they not be able to match Manchester City and, and give them a game and compete? No, there was still a challenge. Both the goals came from set pieces. It wasn't an open game, which is good. That's good for the Premier League. It was a, it was a tight game. There was a one-goal margin. City time wasted for about 20 minutes at the end of the game in the corner. 
you know, classic Pep Guardiola, bringing on midfielders, <laughs> putting them up front, you know, playing a very disgusting defensive game. But it was tight. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think that there was, there would have been more of a challenge if Mourinho had maybe played the right formation or maybe played a few different players. But there was still a challenge. It wasn't mm. a 5-0, a 6-1. You know, and they count minutes, Dave. Can I just also comment something that, a lot of people, and the same happens with Arsenal because English people are morons. We really are. Is that <laughs> during the time when Arsenal were playing their great football, they were also absolute wankers off the ball. Vieira yeah. was a wanker. So many of them committed petty and um, almost criminal fouls. If half the fouls that United um, Arsenal committed nowadays in the Premier League, they, they'd be playing with seven men by the end of the game. Patrick Vieira was a common one for it. Obviously, their back line was a great one for it. And then force that in midfield. Very often we overlook that because of the beautiful football. Same happens with Pep Guardiola's team. They commit very small fouls. Very cynical. The pitch. But would, wouldn't cynical, you say that those are fouls. those are like tactical fouls to slow down the game in some sense? I mean, yeah, I understand Nico, what you're Nico, saying. I, I understand it's, it's a very clever way of doing it. But actually, I think a really good point to make is that it... I'm, I, I'm not necessarily making it. I've, I've, I was reading in the NBA earlier this week that the rules at one point were changed so that people wouldn't make cynical fouls like that. I think it's much more difficult in football because you've got a much wider, expansive um, space. And also, you know, you don't necessarily know what's cynical and what isn't. Whereas in the NBA, it, it, I think it's quite different to rule on those sorts of things. They have the time and the breaks in between, etc. But it, it's just worth saying, I think, this ideological camp, and we've spoken about it last week on the podcast, that somehow Pep Guardiola is the saviour of all football and he's playing football, whereas other people are not playing football in the same way that uh, Klopp was talking shit on the weekend about one team playing football and one not. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't serve the game very well because it makes it sound as if Mourinho's... It, it takes away from the analysis of Mourinho because we just go, is he playing good football? No, therefore, this is bad. And actually, what... What I think is quite rare at the moment that Dave's offering is some rare insight into Manchester United that isn't just Paul Pogba's not there, see around. And that's the difference. But the, 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 there's a huge difference there because what's actually worth analysing is uh, Mourinho in terms of he's, he's the underdog again in his career. He's again lashed out or someone has lashed out from inside his camp. Someone ended <laughs> he, up he's in the tunnel. Out. Milk was thrown. You know, there's no point in crying <laughs> Milk, over that. Milkgate, yeah. Well, yeah. Well Milkgate, yeah. But it, it's it's worth mentioning that that actually, uh, to some extent, uh, like there, there's a there's a battle that he was he's losing out there, and I think Mourinho is frantically trying to make up ground and give his players time to be able to work out a confidence, b positioning, and see um, how they how they actually play as a unit out there on the pitch. It's a lot of them panicked on the weekend, like Dave said, and I think it got in the way of Manchester United enacting what Mourinho would have wanted. Which I'd again, also... we sort of, you know, we blame Klopp for that because we say, you know, Jurgen Klopp's not, you know, he doesn't play the right team or whatever. He does this wrong, does that wrong. I think we should maybe analyse some of Mourinho in the same way. I'd also like to ask Dave about Andrew Herrera's performance because I think he was extremely subpar. Um, I think positionally he was kind of... Should have had a penalty. Possibly, but I, I also think I, positionally, a lot of times he was letting you know midfielders in behind him. As we talked about, the central role, not the false nine, but the central role that Raheem Sterling played was a big part of how many chances they created. And I just, I, I mean, I've definitely seen Andrew Herrera play better. So, is there any tactical reason as to why you think he was less than his best, or or is it just him? I think it was isolated. I think I think both Matic and Herrera were quite isolated by the system. I think playing again, not banging on, but playing a back three allows players to step out and deal with that. That 
that's the other part of playing a back three is that you can happily go Victor Lindelof, you can step into midfield and you can deal with that movement in behind Ander Herrera. Again, a key part of City's play is both Kevin De Bruyne and Silva operating in between the lines. You know, whether it's one drops and one playing there or both in there, that's the free eight thing. And to play a back three means that you don't need to worry about what's behind you. I think Ander Herrera, it just had a very much an Ander Herrera game of this season where because he doesn't have a run of games, Ander Herrera is a player that basically needs to play every single week. It's like that classic Wayne Rooney thing where Rooney needs a few games after injury to get going again. Ander Herrera is very much the same. I think it's a confidence thing. I think, it, as I mentioned before, he made a terrible decision on the, the, the free kick that led to the goal. I thought that was a very, very poorly timed tackle. I thought that he should have been a very, you know, more smarter in that game. But then you look at the stats as well. He's putting in 10 tackles. He's made, um, you know, a hat full of interceptions, five interceptions as well. So in the defensive sense, he's getting through work, but there was no link. Compare that to you know what we've seen previously from maybe Amaro and Fellaini, let's say. Let's not even bring Paul Pogba into this analysis. Amaro and Fellaini may have been a bit more aggressive in that situation, but timed it a bit better. Not been so giddy in that situation. Stood on his feet, used his body a bit better. Um, I just think Ander Herrera is in an interesting part of his United career with 18 months coming left on his deal. You just you know you don't know what's going to happen in the summer really. Nico, let me ask you, uh, you know, we were talking about how it's 2-1 and maybe that didn't necessarily reflect City's dominance. As we mentioned, Lukaku had that chance where potentially he could have snatched a point for Manchester United. Do you think, you know, that there are these vulnerabilities there for Manchester City that someone like Spurs could expose? Is that is that and should that be a concern? 100%. I'm not a City fan that's calling the league right now, uh, despite the, the gap or anything like that. I think it's going to be a very tough winter period, given the frequency of games. And I think something that I was sort of thinking about, like, if you look at maybe Spurs right now, with their Champions League draw, Juventus is a very good team. Juventus will have a winter break, uh, and then be fresh. And, you know, in terms of their development tactically as a team, I think they're going uh, right into that period. Well, they'll be um, making the right steps in the time that they play Tottenham, whereas Tottenham will have a grueling winter period, possibly still be dealing with some major injuries. And they'll be, I think, a little bit fatigued going into that game. So, uh, you know, I think the, it, the winter period is going to be the defining moment for Manchester City's season because they are an English club and they want to compete across all of these competitions. And I know Dave may disagree with me, but I think Spurs have the the tactical ability more so than Manchester United to to challenge Manchester City in ways that they don't want to be challenged. Um, so I think the game against Tottenham will be incredibly difficult, and I wouldn't be surprised if City didn't win that game or, or they drew, um, because I think Spurs is an extremely talented team, and I think they have the right um, tactical setup to, to sort of expose Manchester City. We probably should talk about hashtag Milkgate which was the instant after the game where it all kicked off. Mourinho going to the Manchester City dressing room, apparently upset with the over-the-top celebrations. Milk was thrown. Edison and Mourinho were arguing. Arteta sustained an injury to his face somehow. So, so, so this, is, this is, can I, can I, I just, from what is being reported, and Lawrence touched on this. It was Oasis that set off Mourinho. This is the second time in, his, in Mourinho's career where he's clearly been outplayed uh, and he's lost the game and he has instigated other players and you know the the response that the city players may have had in, in terms of throwing stuff at him or doing Get whatever him, 
is is was inappropriate was inappropriate because physical violence is never the answer to, to a situation but as a man x amount of years those players seniors specifically ederson who is the one he i think reportedly initially instigated and nonetheless the manager of manchester united he completely understands what he's doing and i think if we look at if we try to look at this in the context of like a footballing sense he understands i i think he he understands what he's doing in the sense that he is trying to play a mind game. He's trying to plant like a little seed or a little thorn in the minds of a city team that is, you know, you know, doing very, very well. They have an 11 point gap going into the winter period. It's, you know, almost unprecedented. Um, and I think he, he's trying to play the mind games. But where it stops being fun and where it stops being a game for me is when people start to get hurt. And there are, I, there are some people on the Manchester United camp that got hurt, but there are also some people on the Manchester City camp that got hurt. So I think that's where we kind of start to draw the line and say this is completely unprofessional behavior, and the person that is instigating all of this is none other than Jose Mourinho. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> From your personal opinion, Nico, because you obviously weren't in the tunnel and you don't know who threw the milk first. Dave was. Or who played Don't the music first the, in a very intimidating way his, in their own My gosh, is my the, gosh, Dave. Players are celebrating a win, a big derby win. Wow, what a travesty that absolutely is. Absolutely not. No, it's 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 my it's my home. It's my house. You can't do that shit in my house, unfortunately. It you can't play your music. Throw, yeah, but you also can't throw milk at your guests. Well, it's my house, Lawrence, so I set the rules. So if I want to love, love a milk card to someone, I'll do that. The, if you don't want to be in my house, Lawrence, you can get on your bus and you can go back across town to your house. Do what the hell you want there. The, the latest disrespectful <laughs> for players that don't understand the derby, what it means between fellow Mancunians. <laughs> Have you got, Nico, it does seem, as Dave is uh, implying, that maybe Mourinho had an issue with what he saw as over-the-top celebrations by Manchester City. They seem to be blasting out Oasis from dressing room, throwing confetti around. Is it a little bit? arrogant almost not that i'm excusing Mourinho's behavior i don't i don't i don't think so i think you as as um as a competitor you just take it on the chin if you if you lost maybe if the players felt that they lost undeservedly so i i don't know then there's some degree of angst but i feel as though the the majority of of people on the manchester united side and as dave has explained in his analysis which i think is very good um that you know, I, I think they deservedly lost the game. It wasn't, and Mourinho is really the only one making out in the press conferences. He said that this, uh, the the goals that City scored were quote disgraceful. Um, that the the game was pretty much down to the referees and them not calling penalties. And I think everybody, if you look at that game objectively, City won that game fair and square. And so for for it, well, I, I like like I said, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think if you look at, I, I think I, I wasn't in the tunnel. Dave wasn't in the tunnel. None of us were in were, were in the tunnel. But I would be surprised to to find out that, some milk. that city city <laughs> city players were holding a speaker and playing Oasis towards anybody. I think Mourinho <laughs> looked for this opportunity to try and try and play. Again, his Nico, mind. this is what you think happened. You because don't know what happened. Because it's consistent with his character. He he poked a, another manager in the Nico. eye. Nico, like you're, making a, you're making big assumptions here on the podcast, That's and we don't like making assumptions on the podcast. <laughs> Nico, you've got to wait for the facts. Use it using all of the using all the evidence I disposal, though. You could probably say, yeah, Mourinho is this sort of character, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the height of hypocrisy for him to be uh, complaining about a lack of respect well, shown. No, Adam, think, you can't make these judgments. Like I, Nico, think, you know, yeah. I think Mourinho sees himself on a bit of a Mourinho sets himself up on like an almost moral crusade sometimes and i think he sometimes buys into that character a little bit 
too much. Although in a few years' time, we might see him vindicated because he was fighting evil. It's just a shame that they didn't let the the cameras from this reported Manchester City documentaries being made with Amazon into Old Trafford on the day. We could have got all this on camera. The cheek of that as well. That's what we're missing. Imagine that. Hey, Man United, want to you know get on our big commercial deal with Amazon that have paid us loads of millions of pounds and promoting our stupid Man City group around the world? Yeah, of course, guys. Yeah, I think that's how Manchester City were hoping the conversation was going to go. It didn't exactly play out that way. Um, so Dave's left us uh, just now. But he's going to be back in part two for the Champions League uh, preview of the last mm-hmm. 16. Don't worry. Uh, there are other games to talk about. I mean, we spoke a long time talking about the, uh, the Manchester Derby. Obviously, one of the defining games of the season, I think it's fair to say. But many other important games going on Lawrence not least of which the Merseyside derby one all it ended in the end between Liverpool and Everton safe to say Jurgen Klopp wasn't particularly happy with the uh, the penalty decision the controversial penalty decision uh, against Dejan Lovren I mean first off are you uh, are you in agreement with Jurgen Klopp that it wasn't a penalty or are you normal and think yes it definitely was I definitely think there's a. I think I see both campsites. So I see there's a case for the penalty, but I think I would call it one of those soft penalties, as they say. Don't necessarily like the use of the word soft, but In, it's a it's a easy to concede penalty. Soft, However, yes. I do see the faults of Lovren yes. for letting him get to that side, and then being in the position where he could concede it. So both ways it works. You've just got to say in a derby, that sort of game, it, mm. there's more to it. There's there's passion, there's pride. And I it think is. between uh, between those, there's less pride in drawing and treating it as if it's a win uh, rather than uh, drawing and being like, oh, we could have done better. Oh, nice big sound, Dick. Um, it does seem that Klopp, was, uh, Klopp did seem very frustrated after the game, almost incredulous that it was given as a penalty. He went into the uh, the press conference afterwards with the, the written press, apparently said, right, hands up, who thinks it was actually a penalty? And 90% of them put their hand up, supposedly. So uh, he sort of just shrugged off that and said, clearly I know Safety nothing about numbers. football. Safety but obviously very frustrated after the game, Lawrence. Almost frustrated with himself, would you say? I mean, a lot of accusations that maybe he got this one wrong, which I think may be a little bit harsh. But there was some criticism for withdrawing Mohamed Salah with 20 minutes left of the game, with Liverpool only one nil up. Yeah, the he rotation with Roberto Firmino. I mean, of it, course, it's, it's not like he he didn't he didn't withdraw him for he didn't just withdraw him and go. Well, we best not make a sub here. Let's just go down to ten. Do you well, know what I mean? Do you think he's he's blameless though in a sense because I mean regardless from the substitutions the changes he made throughout the game the starting lineup itself was something of a surprise um, yeah I mean I definitely think that rotation is going to be key for Liverpool you're damned if you don't you're damned if you don't in many senses and I think Jurgen Klopp did sum it up quite well he said that's my job you know I live and die by those decisions um, and I, I think it, it, there are elements of it being disrespectful to certain players to say um, that they're not up to the standard. Liverpool have got a squad for a reason. You're supposed to rotate that squad. I also see you're probably supposed to start your strongest players. I also see that Liverpool then have a midweek game. So, um, you know, there's, there's. I suppose most people say, well, you want to start your strongest team for the derby. Yeah, I imagine he would have also thought Liverpool could win that match. And Liverpool should have won that match. I'm not saying that it wasn't a penalty. I'm saying Liverpool should have put more chances away in that mm. game. And it comes again down to Liverpool creating chances, not as many as in other games, still creating chances and not finishing them. And it's continually the problem for Liverpool is that they, you know, Sadio Mane got into that position. I think it's very unfair criticism of him. He's been fantastic for Liverpool this season, um, probably justified in going for that shot. So there's a lot in there to digest. <laughs> it's, I mean, you, you say it there, Lawrence, 
it's poor decision making, both in an attacking sense and a defensive sense with Lovren. I think whether it was penalty or not, I think as Big Sam pointed out after the game, if Lovren puts his hand on the attacker, there's no need for it. Essentially, you're giving the referee a decision to make. And I think in that case, he, he made the I right decision. I, I think Big, Big Sam's baiting incredibly well there. I think of he course, knows exactly what it. I, also, I, I don't Sam, think it was a, a bit of, There's an element of bad blood between Big Sam. Um, and any foreign manager in the league now because I think Big Sam's put a few people's backs up and he knows what he's doing. He knows he's a bit of a bad guy for Liverpool anyway. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't think there's any love lost there between Big Sam and uh, Liverpool fans or any Liverpool manager. So I think in, in many ways he says something that he knows isn't 100% right. Of course, and certainly the penalty had a, a massive impact on the game, Nico, but at the same time you can't help but feel Liverpool should have done more to, to put that game out of sight beforehand. Yeah, to some extent, but I also feel like, I don't know, they were completely deserved winners, as maybe Lawrence mentioned, not in the best way, but still he mentioned that, um, you know, Jurgen Klopp was saying one team tried to play football and the other didn't, and they created tons of chances, they were completely on the front foot the entire game, Everton, you know, they were they were as defensive as physically possible, and they still conceded a ton of chances, so I think had you know, a couple of, as they say, gusts of wind gone differently, then we wouldn't be talking about it. But I, I think Liverpool can feel encouraged by the result because their good performances continue to happen. And, and personally, I don't think it was a penalty. Um, having watched about 80,000 replays, I, I think Calvert-Lewin just dives and the referee got it wrong, in my opinion. Um, I think there's also, there's a number of ways to, to see it. I think Klopp, Klopp was incredibly combative with the people questioning him in the post-match, which I don't necessarily have a problem with. I, I don't think he was overly personal. It wasn't as if he was sort of personally attacking, but I do think he was trying to belittle the guy asking the questions or maybe put up a few too many defences. I think in England, we do get quite upset about I know I've been upset by managers talking to journalists in certain ways in the past, or not been upset, but sort of, you know, made more of it than maybe was necessary. And I think in other leagues, they embrace the prickly side they embrace the combative side of that I think in England it's very much more like well listen mate you, you know you're just drawn be a gracious loser go back and play it in this way and sometimes when people break out of those moulds people get a little bit upset and I think in many ways Sky will be much happier with the interview that he gave rather than him saying yeah it was alright we'll, we'll live and learn you know I also, so I think people, I also there's think a performative in, in, element to it that's what I'm saying I also think, and we were kind of talking about this uh, pre-record, you know, I, I think Jurgen Klopp's frustration is, is sort of um, justified because he sort of mentioned in the interview that every derby that he's been involved with, um, or the majority of them, has had some sort of incident with Everton or there's been some feeling of injustice in, in the way of Liverpool. Because, And, and I think the, the thing that he might have mentioned or was referencing in specific was, um, you know, when Everton, when Funes Mori like stamped on Divock Origi's ankle and kissed the Everton badge and then went off, like it, it's just an extremely frustrating game for Liverpool. And I think Lawrence kind of summed it up best when we were talking about it before, which is, you know, Liverpool drew the game and they felt extremely disappointed. It was basically like a loss and Everton drew the game and felt like it was basically a win. And it talks, it sort of contextualizes the the where both clubs are and mm. regardless of the result i think you can look at liverpool and say they're on an upward trajectory and you can very much look at the league table and say everton are a downward tra trajectory it was well, uh, I mean, but, well were 
But it was a uh, a classic big sound. The most big sound performance I think I've ever seen. There was some pass maps floating around Twitter over the weekend. There was one from the Manchester Derby showing all the different pass combinations. Manchester City uh, illustrated, you know, over three passes between the, the different players, the avenues, etc. For Everton, it was simply <laughs> Pickford up to Calvert-Lewin. That was basically the only pass they made more than three times in the first 80 minutes or something. So it was a very big sound performance. But it was effective in, in the end. They got a point. Um, I think it's, it's as you say, it, it sort of almost feels like a defeat for Liverpool after uh, the way they played. Very frustrating for Jurgen Klopp and, and clearly showed that after the game. Um, more drop points in the top four as well for Chelsea, uh, losing to West Ham at the London Stadium on Saturday 1-0. Marco Anatovic with the sole goal after six minutes. Uh, West Ham apparently only turn up for London derbies. They looked, at, they looked a different team in this one, Nico. Signs of, uh, of improvement under David Moyes. Yeah, I didn't catch too much of this one, but you know, I, I think a lot of people derided the the um, appointment of David Moyes, and certainly I did as well. But we if he did. can, yeah, I think we all did. Um, and if he, but if he can get that sort of inspiration um, out of those players and how haphazard they looked in games previous uh, and performed in that and perform in that way against a team that is as good as Chelsea, then I think they have some semblance of hope um, for the season going forward. And it's a bit of a weird one, you know, this year given how many teams we wouldn't normally associate with you know being with being relegation contenders are near um those positions so if he can get west ham at least to mid-table i mean i guess he's done a good job and that's part of the rehabilitation process that maybe he wanted to go to west ham for in the first place is it also partly the problem that moise is very up and down with a lot of his teams at the moment and he needs to be a bit more consistent i think you, you know it, it, the position is yeah. they need they need points and actually, I understand that form isn't something you can always criticise a manager for because, you know, they'll, they'll, maybe they'll put together five in ten games. But, um, but it, it can't always be that the players are only up for those big games because it seems like Moyes is very good at motivating players for those kind of games. He has to be also good at motivating players for those everyday, almost normal games. And it seems as if normality is something which grinds away um, he's, he, the existence of David Moyes. You know, he's almost a nihilistic manager in some of his press conference conferences which is um it's entertaining but it's also a bit morbid morose he is that uh that was his first home win in in just under a year i believe if we eat uh he last he last one was sunderland uh on 17th of december 2016 against watford so it's 11 successive draws or defeats so uh and we all know how well that went yes but you know uh, things come up millhouse for david Moyes and west ham um problems over chelsea would you say lawrence i mean antonio conte came out after the game and, and stated the obvious that chelsea are out of the title race it does feel like a race for the top four essentially uh, yeah, it's definitely a race to the top four, although I think you pretty much count a lot of people out of the title race. Um, it's uh, it's going to be frustrating for Conte. I think he realises at the moment that he's not got things the way that he wanted to by this season. That's partly down to uh, the players he's bought, partly down to the fact that he's disenfranchised some of the players from the project. Um, and like I was saying earlier, I think there's also some sort of unspoken politics out there. Um, a big problem for him is going to be motivating the players towards the end of the season. Uh, because he has a squad which is still quite right. Um, it, it's it's probably going to be able to be shaped by another manager because there's a lot of players in there um, who before have managed to, you know, uh, be great under other managers. You know, you got the likes of Morata in there. You have got the likes of Eden Hazard as well. Who maybe is looking at pastures new. 
Um, and as much as this system right now is shaped by content, I imagine there will be integral parts of that which he see, he considers to be important. I don't think he's quite got the shape right. I think at times, uh, because of the system that they play, which if it's if you break them up in midfield, basically they have a bit of a problem. Then uh, it can be it can be very difficult for him to find a way around that right now. And I find that a little bit unusual. Uh, without this back three, sometimes that Chelsea team just doesn't look right. And even with that back three, it doesn't look great at the moment. Hmm, that's However, we up. do like them, and we do like Conte. Hey, who doesn't? Um, eat grass. Great documentary. Uh, let's wrap up quickly the rest it of the results. It was called How Conte Taught Me to Learn Again or something like I'm that. I'm pretty sure it's called Eat Grass. Um, yeah, let's uh, wrap up the rest of the results quickly. Burnley maintain their fantastic early season form. 1-0 win over Watford. 10-man Watford. Um, Crystal Palace against Bournemouth. 2 all in this game. Did you guys manage to catch any of this? Crystal Palace basically... I think I'd look at their expected goals. It was something like five or six goals they should have scored. You, like we were saying last week, you rarely see it above four. It was above four for Crystal Palace. Um, wasted so many chances. They had 24 shots in total in this game. And again, at the end, they had a chance to win it with a penalty, which Christian Mendeke decided he was going to take, um, taking the ball away from the, the regular penalty taker. I'm going to butcher his name. Mihailovic? Mihailovic? I think that's his name. Um, stepping up and missing, I think, his second penalty in a row. Benteke potentially costing Crystal Palace some very important points, you know, uh, with Swansea winning, with the likes of West Ham winning, who are also, of course, in the bottom three. You know, it does feel like a massive missed opportunity for them. But that incident also overshadowing, I think, potential goal of the season contender for Jermaine Defoe. Did you guys see this one? The looping equaliser towards the end? I saw the I goal did from not. Jermaine Defoe. I didn't see the highlight. I've been to Bournemouth. I flew to Bournemouth this weekend. It was easy, Jack. Adam. Bloody uh, well, it, was, it was it was EasyJet and, and flights, but I mean it was very very frustrating. EasyJet didn't deal with it, and, and the, the captain of the plane did, but EasyJet themselves gave us no updates or whatever. Um, but it was the snow's it fault. Was, it was their fault, surely. It was the snow's fault, but at the same time, if it's the snow's fault, then let us know that we were sort of sat there blind on the runway. Uh, they put paper bags on all of our heads, and they said, "You all of you get down on the floor." No, um, and. We we flew to Bournemouth because we could not land at Stansted, and then um, yeah. So I've been to Bournemouth this weekend, and, uh, and, and never have I seen lovely place. Never have I seen lovely place, great game. Never have I seen a cabin full of people Google Bournemouth so quickly when the captain said <laughs> wow. we're diverting to Bournemouth. There's so many Americans went Bournemouth, Bournemouth. Where's Bournemouth? Oh, that's disrespectful. Uh, to and then about, about fifteen twenty phones came out um, proving that mobile phones don't interfere with what's going on once and for all finally glad yeah. we, we solved that on this podcast um elsewhere in the Premier League we always had Huddersfield beating Brighton 2-0 big win for uh for them Swansea Huge. massive three points Wilfred Bonnie with the winner against West Bromwich Albion um a much needed win for Tottenham Hotspur side. Ah, and Tottenham Hotspur as well a big win for them over Stoke um with every other team in the top four uh well competition I should say for the top four uh, dropping points like we mentioned, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal as well, drawing at Southampton. Big win for Spurs. Um, I mean, Stoke make it so easy for them. Uh, at the same time, I think Spurs, the stat was they're the first English top flight side to beat the same team by four goals or more in four consecutive meetings, which just shows how easy Ooh. they were to beat. Um, but yeah, very easy, a perfect game, I think, for Spurs to, to try and maintain some momentum, some form from that win against Nicosia uh, in the week. We've now got Brighton at home on Wednesday night. So I think that's a big opportunity to get back-to-back wins given the fact we hadn't won in four games. I think um, it's a big opportunity to sort of keep pace, essentially, with the rest of the top four. Um, great to see Heung-Min Son continue his great 
form, another great performance from him. Um, goals and assists. Harry Kane as well, back on the score sheets, looking to break, I believe. Alan Shearer's record for goals in a calendar year in the Premier League. Um, I think he's got four goals in which to score, four games, I should say, in which to score four goals to beat it. Um, the only downside, I think we'd say, would be uh, the form of Deli Alley. I think, you know, with Kane scoring for Sun scoring, Eriksen scoring as well. Yes, Ali got an assist, but um, it was another middling performance from him. And his form has been pretty patchy all season. So I'm not sure whether Pochettino is going to try and you know play him into form almost by starting him against Brighton. Maybe he needs a rest in that game in midweek to uh, to try and rediscover his, his, his best performances. So his form is a cause for concern. Um, finally, Newcastle. Newcastle suffering defeat to Leicester at home. A 3-2 loss. It's now six defeats in seven games for Rafael Benitez's side. One point from a possible 21, and they've conceded 15 goals in their last five matches. In big trouble there, uh, really getting sucked into the relegation battle. We're going to talk more about Newcastle when Chris is back on the podcast on Thursday after their next home game against Everton. Huge game that promises to be a much-needed win for Moot. Newcastle really could do with uh, with a positive result there. Um, but that does bring an end to part one of the podcast it's time for part two it's time for our reaction to the uefa champions league last 16 draw life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The champions last 16 then. Predictions and reactions. The draw was made earlier today. Um, some very exciting ties coming up. Uh, let's go through them all. Let's give some early spurious predictions because that's what we do here. Uh, let's start with the big one. Uh, the first fixture kicking off on February the 13th. Juventus Liverpool. against oh. Tottenham Hotspur. Oh. Dave. Big game. Um, unfortunate for Spurs, finishing top of the group. You'd think they'd be unlikely to draw one of the big guns, but out of all the English teams, they've probably got the toughest tie. Would you agree with that? Mm, yes, I'd say so. I think that's an easy call. I think Sevilla, Porto. Chelsea, and... Barcelona. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I'd say, yeah, I'd say it's the second hardest. I think Chelsea got the hardest, but yeah, okay. it's going to be a diff- difficult challenge, but... If Juventus can't get back into that form and that win- winning mentality by February, Spurs will have a chance. But I kind of think Spurs are geared to have a little bit of a run this season in the Champions League. Adam, I've told you this. Whoever they play, they'll probably beat. Um, up until it's... they lose to United in the semi-final after Mourinho parks the bus. It's music to my ears, but what, why do you think Tottenham have potentially got the beating of Juventus? Then? I think they're a, it's a different Tottenham team this season. I think from watching them against Stoke at the weekend, there's definite changes in how the system's developed to now. 
Whereas we're seeing the Pochettino 4-2-3-1 come back out. We're seeing less, in a way, consistency and, and levels of performance from the fullbacks at the start of the season. The likes of Ben Davis and Trippier were you know, hitting the levels of Walker and Rose last season. As the season's moved on, we're sort of finding out their level. So you need someone like Son to play wide and Son to be a winger and Son to take people on. And that's, that's got really good balance as a, as a forward uh, four players, Harry Kane, Dele Alli, Ericsson and Son. And I like that. And I like that's got a lot of potential on the counter-attack. And that's going to be the big thing for Spurs is hitting people on the break like Juventus. Juventus have struggled this season. Um, again, Allegri needs to take that next step. He's trying to build it to more of a, a winger-based system. Maybe that's the wrong thing to do. Maybe he should move back to a more central-based system. Um, but that's also stuff that he's got to solve. He's got to get Dybala back scoring again. Got to find a system that he can fit Quadrado, Dybala in again. Um, without someone like Danny Alves that was so crucial to the balance last season playing him at right midfield, there's a lot of questions for um, Allegri. And at the moment, Pochettino looks like they could go on a bit of a run here. And I kind of expect them to beat City. I just do. Mm, okay, interesting. Um, I like what you're saying. I, I think with Dave. It, it's interesting. I was going to say it's interesting what you were mentioning, Nico, earlier about uh, the context this game is going to take place in. With you know the winter break for Juventus, obviously a uh, more packed schedule for Spurs. However, you know Spurs might have Toby Alderweireld, Victor Wanyama back by that point. People like Eric Lamella coming back into the squad as it is now, we might have a stronger squad when we face Juventus, albeit one that's uh, down on his feet. Are you, you're going for Juventus in this one, are you? Yeah, I think so, because um, I wrote something on, on Allegri last season, and there was an Italian word that I used in the piece, uh, mutaforma, I think if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, which just means devoid of, of shape and devoid of form. And I think that that sort of encapsulates the flexibility that someone like Allegri can have. And I think that's what we're seeing again from him this year. Um, they obviously had that as as Dave is mentioning, that trademark system where it was sort of lopsided with Danny Alves playing as sort of a right back slash right midfielder but more of a right midfielder um and Mandzukic playing on the left so it was a very uh interesting tactical system that I think got the better and obviously got the better of a lot of teams as they made it to the Champions League final and though they are successfully transitioning to a more offensive system because despite all of Napoli and, and Inter's brilliance in Serie A they are the top scorers by six goals um in Serie A this season with 41 um, and you know, the, but they still, if you look at the, the last champions league game they played against Barcelona, it was a nil nil, but it was a reversion back to that old system, but they don't have Benucci. So they were using Benati in that position. So they were using uh quadrado where Danny Alves would have been. And it was, it was that hybrid and it was good to see that they still have, um, the, you know, the ability to transition to a system that worked so well for them, but they can still be extremely offensive and score a ton of goals. Um, and I think that's that's the key here is that once again, Allegri is, is, is making his flexibility known. And I think given the fact that, like I mentioned, Spurs will have this grueling winter period, they'll be fatigued, they might still be dealing with injuries, um, coupled with the, you know, the fact that Juventus have that winter break and they have... I think Allegri is a very good coach because he understands that you have to build as the season goes on. You have to, um, you know, sort of move forward in the right direction and make sure that you're hitting your stride in the right moments in order to be successful in certain competitions. And I think he's fully aware of that. And I think right at that right at that period in time, like I said before, they'll be hitting their stride. They'll be moving um, towards a, a quote unquote Champions League final form. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, honest. but I think 
I think Juventus are, are going to come out winners in that one. Listen, Tottenham are going to win this one. No one gave them a chance in the group stages. We did it at Madrid. We did it. If, at you, can't, if you can't beat Gary Megson, what what uh, what <laughs> hopes do you have uh, beating uh, Allegri? <laughs> Listen, I'm going to go for Spurs. Lawrence, have you got any uh, opinion on who's going to go through in this one? Have Juventus or Tottenham? I like the idea that Tottenham can go out there and um, impose themselves on uh, Juventus, mainly mm-hmm. because it's that season when people are saying maybe Juventus is reign is over I know that there's been that pick up like Nico's um, alluding to and talking about um, you still get that feeling that Pochettino's on a special path and I don't know if that's something that we've all, we've all cooked up in our minds as we've covered him quite a lot on the podcast it's the it's just the, the element of Juve in the Champions League as well I think is something that's um, quite prolific and uh, you know we went we went to cover Juventus last season and there's something quite intimidating about that atmosphere and not in a an overawing way but in an almost like right come on let's get this one out of the way and we'll get the next one out of the way and it, like Nico says if, if they're in that sort of momentum by that point it's going to be very difficult to see beyond them um, they do have a sort of a similar style of covering their teams though um, in that you know they've got a kind of a, um, a Harry Kane type Dybala in there um, you know they've, they've got the wing backs they've got uh, the centre backs that seem or seemed very vital to the project mm. um, and you know they've got an experienced goalkeeper so I think it's going to be interesting and at least if Spurs don't win this one I think they'll see they'll almost have a taste of things to come mm, that's certainly a good matchup. Um sorry Juventus are going to fuck you up so <laughs> thank you yeah after all that listen more tears for Buffon that's what we're going to see uh, what about Basel Manchester City Nico also kicking off on for a what bit a 13th that first tie um, appears straightforward you'd say if Pep Guardiola signed yeah I'd say straightforward um I don't think it will be the easiest thing in the world. I haven't watched that much Basel, to be honest. But, um, you know, given that they're this far in the competition, I imagine they have some degree of proficiency about them. Uh, and given the fact that they beat Manchester United, Dave, uh, they ought to be pretty good, right? So I think Manchester City will, will it'll be, it won't be as easy as maybe some people are claiming. But definitely, I think most would favor them to go through. You may act the big man in the Champions League, Nico. But, um, in fact, Gothenburg have got to more European Cup semi-finals than Manchester City have in their entire history. So, in terms of Basel, yes, United were beaten by them. Yes, Mourinho made a slight tactical misdemeanor and Lukaku was playing on the right wing. They overlooked. Oh, Mourinho and making tactical issue there. What a but, surprise that is. But yeah. for you, Nico, my friend, is, um, you know, Guardiola hasn't quite done it over the last few seasons in the Champions League when pushes come to shove. You think about his... Barcelona, sorry, his Bayern Munich team that went man for man with Barcelona and suicidal on the back three uh, with the likes of MSN up front. There's issues with Pep Guardiola in the Champions League, Nico. Yes, you may have won the Premier League already at a canter, but the Champions League is a different <laughs> cup of gravy. Uh, very well said. Or um, milk. Manchester, yeah, very well. Uh, Manchester City now the favourites for this competition, I should add, in uh, in the bookmaker's eyes after this draw was made. So, um, yeah, going into this one as heavy favourites. What about Porto-Liverpool, Lawrence? Ooh. First, they're kicking off on the 14th of February. Um, Porto, going through. <laughs> I, I don't watch enough. I'll be honest, I don't watch enough uh, Portuguese football. I even had struggle for the country that Porto's from. Um, and, uh, it's, Closing the name. It, yeah, I mean, the, partly, but then, you know, Liver, Liverpool aren't called Liver England, mate. It's true. Um, it's true. It's true. It's true. You can't fault me on that. Um, I think uh, Liverpool always, I think uh, Jürgen Klopp uh, savours the, the knockout rounds. Uh, you know, 
he very much had that run a few years ago with Dortmund when they were, I think they were at a, a slightly different si- point in their cycle to Liverpool in that they were absolutely uh, scintillating and actually had some consistent centre-backs. Um, but I think he he relishes this kind of thing and Liverpool have gone deep under competitions in competitions under him. Um, so I'm going to say Liverpool go through in this one, especially if Liverpool can hang on to Coutinho in January. Uh, uh, do you think Porto, Nico, might might surprise a few people here? And Nico's not just being a dick. No, I'm just joking. Lawrence, yeah. no, I'm just being a dick. Um, but I, I, there's, no ch- there's no chance of a potential surprise. No, no, no. They're, they're a good team. I think um, oh, I, I, was, I was impressed by their performances in the group stage given the fact that they beat a Mon- you know a very strong monaco team um they're not as bad as some people are claiming you know obviously they've lost a lot of players from last year but monaco are still a good team with all the additions that they've made they're still proficient uh, relatively proficient in Liga. um but i think as lawrence has mentioned on the podcast many times it's it's down to liverpool's ability to control that element of you know their offense where they like to roll the dice as i mentioned on the previous podcast they have a very specific tactic of creating transition by opening up um, perceived space to the opposition and then provoking the long ball. And I think Dave made a really, really good point on the last one where he said, and this is why I favor Chelsea to some extent, um, where I think the Champions League, especially this year, favors a team that's going to be more uh, defensively oriented. And I think Liverpool, while they may go far, um, given their fantastic attack and their ability to create that kind of transition and then come out on top, I, f- I don't know if that strategy is going to work in the latter stages against teams that have just exceptional players. Um, but I think in this in this tie, I think they'll, they'll, they'll get through quite handily. What about Manchester United, Dave? They'll probably fancy their chances as well of going through to last eight. They're against Sevilla in the last 16. The second leg, of course, taking place at Old Trafford. You expect any, any issues here for, for United? Not really. I think it might be the, the Europa League was a good sort of test for United last season in terms of progressing in these types of tournaments. And I think that's why United, in a way, have an edge over the rest of their English counterparts is they've actually won a European trophy um, lately. And I think that's a good building block for the Champions League. You know, think about Mourinho's Porto team, won the UEFA Cup, won the Champions League, because I think it's that mentality and getting into that sort of, you know, the knockout stages where you just need to get the job done. Yeah, United weren't pretty last year. They weren't good um, in some of the games. Anderlecht at home, they were quite poor. Celta Vigo were quite poor, but they still got through the work. And I think that's something that will give Mourinho a lot of, you know, hope in a way about how United can progress and, you know, sort of what they need to do. Eva Benegra, obviously the the key guy for Sevilla, has completed 100, sorry, 100, 575 passes in the Champions League this season, which is 49 more than any other player. And I think that if you can stop him, you stop Sevilla. And that's quite a simple thing for Mourinho. Just kill one playmaker, you're done. There's not multiple playmakers in a side that you've got to deal with. So I think it'll be quite simple. I think, you know, having Maro and Fellaini up against Eva Benega or Nemanja Matic up against Eva Benega, you kind of won that tie in a way. I think Liverpool showed Sevilla can get hit on the counter-attack. What Liverpool didn't do is defend well after that. What United won't do is obviously that. So it's kind of this situation where I think this Sevilla game should be sorted before it's even played. But then again, it is Manchester United and they have been a bit funny over the last few seasons in terms of doing things that they should do. The final English team, which we talk about, is obviously Chelsea drawing Barcelona. A very difficult draw for them. But maybe they can take some encouragement, Lawrence, from the fact that Lionel Messi has never scored against Chelsea in eight previous matches. Uh, yeah, but mate, they might, not, they might not take solace in that because he also <laughs> hadn't scored against Buffon. 
and he also <laughs> broke that this season. So, who, who, who do you favour to go through in this one though? Because obviously Barcelona, a lot has been made about how they're not the team they want to wear, etc. Perhaps not as strong this year as they have been in previous seasons. Would you back right. Chelsea to perhaps spring a surprise? I think Barcelona are the favourites. Um, I think if, if anyone is capable of a surprise, it's uh, it's it's Chelsea because I think they they'll very much uh, see themselves as underdogs. I think behind the scenes, there's a lot of stuff going on at Chelsea, which maybe we can't talk about at the moment in terms of it, it feeling quite disrupted and disruptive with a lot of people unsure of their future at the club. Um, certain players want to know that Conte is going to stay. Certain players uh, want to know that Conte might not be around for a very long time. So it was hard heard. Um, and I think it makes it difficult to uh, galvanise a team which requires 100% of dedication when you don't necessarily know that the cause you're galvanising for is going to be one which is around for a long time. Now, I know these guys are all professionals, et cetera, et cetera. That could be a real problem. Hopefully, that will be resolved um, for Conte and for the rest of his team because, obviously, you want to see Chelsea do well and create another classic tie against Barcelona. But you just get the feeling that this Barcelona team now have somewhat of a point to prove that without the... Uh, the gone Neymar they can actually do something and I think at some point it's almost written in the stars that they're going to meet that PSG team mm. Would you agree with that Nico? Mm. Or Dave? Well um, a famous man put a bet on at the start of the season Brilliant um, with Barcelona as the choice How have your bets gone in the past choice. Dave? Um, well considering <laughs> that I predicted um, the Real Madrid game to a point 4-1 £160 I've nailed the Champions League of the season before that as well, the winners. So I think I'm, I'm doing quite well. I, think, I think, think you know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> Nico, you've... Um, You're missing a big one, Dave. Incredible. Yeah. Nico, you've, uh, you know, you bet once in your life, correct? And it was on Juventus in the Champions League final because I yeah. facilitated that bet for you and you lost, unfortunately. And you still owe me that £10. <laughs> you didn't pay when I let you stay at my house, now. Nico. But, you know, we're all friends here, so I'll let that Listen, slip. Dave, that, 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 debt is, that debt is paid because you made me hang out with a weird Frenchman for 48 hours. So. <laughs> a really oh, good God. point. Though. Olivier Giroud um, is lovely in his spare time. Uh, can we also just say it was lovely to see Javi Alonso? Just good to see you, Javi. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're all big fans. Um, Touch all the warm so balls. Dave, you, you, you think Barcelona are cruising through this? They're going to win the whole thing? A personal dream, Dave. Definitely yeah, not. I'm but, going in. Yeah. Barcelona or Bayern. Wow. Um, Whoa, Barcelona dude. at the moment. I, I, I feel like Chelsea have got the beating of Barcelona in this one, Nico. What do you reckon? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to. I think it'll be the most exciting uh, tie that, out, out of all of them because I think it is that quintessential defense versus attack. It's Lionel Messi in, in a very special moment in his career. Um, and I think given all the the brilliance that someone like Aiden Hazard and Elvar Morata can provide on the counterattack, Barcelona, especially this season, is still a very special team. Um, and I think... I just think it'll be the most exciting, the most exciting game we can watch it in that stage of the Champions League, and I'm really looking forward to it. I once again, I, I think I slightly favor Chelsea um, because of their counterattacking ability, but there is there is nothing to suggest you know the greatest player of all time couldn't couldn't just uh, turn that tie on its head. Ah, the goat, the goat himself. Um, I mean, you said it was potentially the most exciting tie. What about Real Madrid PSG? Nico, you're not excited. Yeah, the two Ronaldo big guns not playing in this tie. Paris PSG going going through pretty easily on that one. Killing Mbappe, Whoa. Neymar. Really? So it's a, it's a blistering team. Yeah, I think they'll I think they'll line up because a lot of people are, are speaking negatively about Unai Emery and his inability to control his players. But I think right now 
he's he's applying that you know laissez-faire approach in in Liga. They're enjoying some some great form. They're scoring some great goals. But I think in the latter stages of the Champions League, that's when they'll look to to their manager and 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 look to how he can line things up tactically as he did in the first leg of the Barcelona uh, tie last last year to to overcome that. And I think Real Madrid are a very tactically exploitable team. And I think given given a certain level of dedication from the from his players, I think Paris Saint Germain will will start to to further their progress as they as they want to as a club because this is we have to remember this is the goal that they set out when they got their massive investment a few years ago mm-hmm. they wanted to win the champions league they they've won liga five times in a row or six times in a row whatever it was but this is the major goal and i think with neymar with mbappe with all the players that they brought in the summer that is their major goal and i don't think they're gonna they're gonna stop at anything to, to get there I mean, Dave, Nico speaks to have Unai Emery's inability to control his players. He's also got an inability to win at the Santiago Bernabeu. I think it's 10 games, zero wins uh, at Real Madrid's famous stadium. Do you think he can turn that around and win this tie with PSG? Absolutely not. After watching the Bayern Munich PSG game, he's going to get absolutely torn a new win on the counter-attack. So broken as a team PSG are at the moment. So bad in midfield. One thing that you can't afford to do against this Real Madrid team is expose yourself on the counter-attack. And with some of the play that we saw from PSG and some of the pressing from the likes of Marco Verratti and Arabio, who are supposed defensive midfielders, was clueless, stupid. And Bayern exposed them. And this Bayern team's going through a little bit of a transitional period now, like finally getting the uh, Carlo Ancelotti out of this, uh, you know, sort of bodies and then building on this... Um, next sort of phase of Bayern, but PSG were just atrocious. And if he continually plays Julian Draxler, Neymar, Mbappe and Cavani, they're going nowhere. The better teams will pick them off. And, and that's the problem that they've unfortunately got. Probably one of the best teams in Europe in the first knockout stages. They don't have a severe, they don't have, you know, a weaker side. This is, this is one of the big dogs. And I think this is kind of, Again, this is one game where PSG will just be opened up on the counter and unfortunately for them, they'll be dumped out with, with Neymar and all their millions. What about Bayern, who you mentioned there, Dave? Uh, they've drawn the Turkish champions, Besiktas. They're coming to Besiktas, as they uh, gleefully tweeted out a few minutes after the draw. Um, do you think this is as straightforward as it appears? Uh, I watched the Leipzig-Besiktas game. Besiktas were pretty poor. Leipzig got a hat full of chances. The Besiktas keeper, I think it was the second-choice keeper that game made a few pretty decent saves um Besiktas you've got players like Anderson Taliska who pretty much do nothing in a game like they really drift around in games and then they'll pop up with a goal so it's going to be an interesting encounter but I can't see past Bayern with the, the rotation on that left wing of Ribéry um and the likes of Hammers going out there and overloading that zone with someone like Lewandowski we forget that they have one of the best number nines in world football when the counter-attacking sort of, you know, the direct play is, is aimed his way. And that's how Bayern are moving to with Taliso's goals from midfield as well, those late runs. For me, Bayern are starting to look back to their best in a way. Obviously, at the Ancelotti Bayern, it didn't get to where it should have gone. Um, but I think now we'll see a really compact, aggressive Bayern Munich that has a lot of you know, good spatial awareness between front and back. And you've got someone like Mats Hummels that is starting to maybe get back up to his Dortmund levels. He played some unbelievable passes uh, against uh, PSG. And I think that's kind of what you need. You know, you need your team firing. You need someone like Mats Hummels carrying from the back as well. And you'll start to put some put some performances together. So I think this will be a, an easy win for Bayern Munich and Besiktas to be dumped out, unfortunately. 
Finally, we've got Roma against Shakhtar. The next Nico um, could be a very interesting one. Who who's your money on? Definitely Shakhtar Donetsk. I think mm. they play some brilliant football. Uh, they're really compact. They beat Manchester City. It was the B squad, but it's still an, an achievement. They also beat Napoli, a really good team. Um, so I, you know, I think given the fact that Roma isn't quite as good as I think they would have expected them to be as far as long as far along in their project as they are um i think it'll be it'll sort of be a shock thing for people that don't know that much about Shakhtar Donetsk but i think they are the favorites going into the game because they simply play much better football and i think roma don't have that much invention when it comes to breaking down like a like a proficient side that can play a really high line and 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 squeeze the the play as it were hmm. you'd, you'd assume roma would be the, the favorites dave there but would you agree with N- nico that uh, Shakhtar have got the beating here um, I quite like Roma. I think they, they were very good against Chelsea. When they can counter-attack the right way through the middle in a 4-5-1, they've got a lot of good workmen in the middle of the park. I think in De Rossi, Strootman and, and Nangalan. That's a very aggressive central midfield pair, uh, trio, should I say, sorry. Um, along top of that, you've got Edin Zeko that's scoring goals for fun in Serie A that's very confident along with El Shahawi. Um, I think they've got a very good team and I, I'd quite like to see... Roma push on a little bit and I think not watching, I haven't watched enough of uh, Shakhtar I pretty much avoided that group because Nico was just banging on about it too much I was like I still want to see this shit I don't want to see this passing I, just, I, you know, I want some direct football so I'm going to go with Roma and their counter-attacking aggression Nangalan the key man so it sounds like we're going for oh actually we're quite split on Juventus Tottenham um, but from the round of 16 we're going for Tottenham basically to go through you know we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. give them the, the, the benefit of the doubt <laughs> no. uh, Manchester City to beat Basel surprisingly uh, Liverpool to go through against Porto Manchester United to go through against yeah, Sevilla Real Madrid yeah. we're picking to beat PSG Shakhtar's next oh. Roma was a bit split we'll go for Roma uh, Chelsea Barcelona we were split as well should we go for Chelsea yeah and uh, Bayern Munich to go through as well could be a very interesting last eight guys let us know what you think on twitter at the front three who is going to go through from those fantastic last 16 ties to the final eight in this competition obviously including spurs um but arsenal against sweden aren't they just yeah. sorry just as a spurs fan now you have a look back arsenal against sweden up against the only... oh and napoli uh napoli are are drew rb leipzig which will be a really good tie they are drew rb leipzig Jesus. they are drew um Arsenal up against the only English manager in Europe. Am I correct in saying that? Sammy Lee's yes. correct. Osterson's FK. Their manager is Graham Potter. So uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's a thing. I think I saw something also that um, Arsene Wenger has been in in the job at Arsenal for longer than that club has existed. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, right, guys, that does wrap up. That does wrap up. Um, Monday's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back on Thursday reviewing the Premier League midweek action. We'll also be answering your questions as always on a Thursday and revealing this week's whole of the week. Remember, if you want to be in with a chance of being the whole of the week, our listener of the week, all you have to do is rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Click the link in the description now for your chance to win and get your hands on a lovely six-pack of Ferrero Rocher. Until Thursday though, Dave, where can the listeners, where can the whole find you um i don't know on youtube probably somewhere <laughs> yeah and maybe around the leeds area oh just generally okay nice uh, are you doing in leeds dave well you know lawrence doing things that do people do in leeds i'm not too sure <laughs> so mysterious um nico where can people find you not in leeds yeah <laughs> end of story I uh, find you in the, the, be- the next best meme on the internet 
Oh, mate, that meme. Unbelievable. I'm, spicy. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud. Spicy. Got, it's got, say what, Nico? Unlike you, it's got legs. It's, <laughs> it's incredibly versatile, you know? <laughs> You've got to respect that. Uh, Lawrence, where can was, people find you? I was you? he was legless on that night. I'm not saying he, he does literally have legs. That, that's <laughs> Lawrence, where can people find you? Um, uh, go to at the front three and you'll mm. see uh, all the different tweets that we do. Very good. Guys, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. We'll see you on Thursday. Until then, have a bloody great week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.